I want to begin today with a question. And that question is this, how patient are you? Honestly. Some of you right now are probably thinking, Scott, not that much. And this is a season that will try that patience even more. For others of you, you're like, you know, it's not that bad. It's actually, it kind of depends. With these things, incredibly. With these things, terribly. And one of the things that I've found is that there are certain situations, there are certain roles, there's even certain seasons in life that try our patience. And for me, one of the things I've found is that parenting demands patience. It changes at every season what you're being patient with. I'm grateful to be a part of a church that has people of all generations because I I don't get to be naive and think that it gets easier. You know, it just gets harder. It just changes the difficulty. When you're raising little kids, the patience is helping them to grow and finally take steps, literally and metaphorically. And then at older seasons, it's picking your battles and deciding, okay, which things are we really going to stand on and which things are we really going to let go? And one of the places is for me that has always been a place of patience trying is what I call food wars. I can remember as a kid, uh, I was a stubborn child and I had very stubborn parents. And so my mom was very insistent that I was going to develop a very well-rounded diet. And so she would try new things, including what I considered exotic vegetables. And so there was one night that, that I just was not going to eat my vegetable. And my mom was not going to lose this battle. And so my mom said, hey, you are going to eat this. And I said, no, I'm not. Well, you're going to stay here all night. And so I sat at the table for a long time. Finally, she took my food, put it on the stovetop, and said, you're going to stare at your food until you eat it. And I said, fine. And I was like... (laughs) And I was there for over an hour, just staring at my green vegetables. And finally, she said, fine, go to bed. And then in the morning, when I woke up, waiting there at the kitchen table was not Cheerios, was not Lucky Charms, it was not pancakes, it was those vegetables again. And, And as invariably works... I had children, and my children ended up a little bit like me. And so I can remember when my oldest son was four, he had a piece of chicken that he didn't like. And we said, you are not going to spit it out. You are going to swallow it. And so he chewed that piece of chicken for an hour and a half. It had stopped being a solid. It turned into a liquid. It was more like cream of chicken than it was solid chicken. And like my mom, I said to him, I'm going to wait you out. And so finally, after about an hour and a half, he wore me out. I said, you can spit it out. And I don't even want to describe to you what came out of his mouth. But that night, he won. And he won. He, won, he waited me out. And, and I was thinking about that story this week as I prepared this final message on this series that we're doing on Jonah. Because what we're going to see today is that Jonah is waiting God out. He's incredibly stubborn. And like a small child with a parent, he is convinced that he can wait God out. But here's the good news. If you're in a season of waiting today... If you're waiting for something to happen that you've been longing for for a long time, if, if maybe you're being stubborn with God, here's the good news. The good news is, is that while we're waiting, God is always working. Whether that waiting is the good kind that's patience and perseverance that builds character, whether that waiting is that stubborn kind that's disobedience and resistance and selfishness, whenever we're waiting, God is always working. 
And I hope as we get ready to close this series out that we've been effective. Because our goal has been in this series to, to reintroduce you to this book of Jonah. For many of you, you grew up hearing the story of Jonah in Sunday school or you saw it in a, a children's you know, expression and, and there's so much more here than we often teach young kids. And so I hope for those of you who are familiar with this story, you've rediscovered it. And for others of you, I hope you've realized that all throughout the scriptures, the scriptures are incredibly relevant. That the scriptures speak to the moment that we're living in. And so today as we close out this book, here's the big idea that we're going to see that really has been kind of threading our way throughout these five weeks. And the big idea is this, what you believe about God determines how you treat people. What you believe about God determines how you treat people. In some ways, what you believe about the creator determines how you treat his creation. And we're going to see this today in the book of Jonah, chapter 4, verses 4 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, open them up, turn them on, head there. We'll get there in a second as we close out this book. But in Jonah 4 today, we're going to walk through four lessons. And those four lessons are going to come from a God who answers his own questions. Because last week was a bit of a cliffhanger. We, we ended the message with a question. And I said, if you come back next week, God is going to answer his question. And we're going to see what happens with Jonah when he responds to God's question. And so we'll dive into that this morning in Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. We'll kind of catch up from last week. This is the question we ended on last week. The Lord asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? And then this is how Jonah responds. Jonah left the city, the city of Nineveh, and he found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and he sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. This is the waiting God out part. And here's the first lesson we learn from a God who answers his own questions. Like Jonah, we expect God to eventually do what we would do. Like Jonah, we expect God to eventually, if we can wait him out long enough, God is going to do what we would do. Now, the text tells us that, that what's happened so far is Jonah's gone to the city of Nineveh after running away. He's preached, as we said a few weeks ago, the worst gospel presentation ever, and it worked because God is good. The people responded to this worst missionary ever. They repented, and so God relented. And Jonah, last week, if you were here, he argues with God about why God did or didn't do what he thought God should do. And so what Jonah does is he leaves the city, and he goes outside of it, and he's like, you know what? I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait because eventually these people are not going to be able to sustain their repentance. Eventually, they're going to fall back. They're going to backslide. They're going to step away from that. And so I'm going to be here because if they do that, eventually God's going to do what I told him he should have done. And so I, I kind of imagine that, that Jonah has gone to REI, you know, now that it's open here in Prescott. You know, he's got himself a tent, you know, and he's, he's pitched his tent outside of the city. He's got a nice, you know, raided for the cold sleeping bag, you know, and he's, he's sat there to wait, you know, like Pastor Josh. He has his nice fancy coffee making, you know, set up right there. And so he's going he's gonna to brew his really good, you know, like single origin beans. And he's going to sit there in his camping chair right outside of his little tent. And he's just going to wait. He's going to wait because, you know, at the end of the day, God's going to eventually do what I think God should do. And he's waiting for this people 
who we saw in week one were the most wicked empire on earth. According to some historians, the most brutal empire in history. And Jonah expects that eventually God is going to do what Jonah would have done, which is destroy the city. Because there's no way that God could love people like that. There's no way God could forgive people like that. And even though he did it in a moment, Jonah's convinced that eventually they're going to turn and God's going to give them what they deserve. Because fundamentally in the day of Jonah, this is the, the belief people had. You love your own people and you hate your enemies. This was the fundamental operating system in the world. When it came to your people, us, you love them. When it came to those people, your enemies, them, you hate them. And this is the way that Jonah sees the world. So he expects God to love his people like he loves his people. And he expects God to hate his enemies the way that he hates his enemies. And this is where I want to remind you of what I think were the best words that A.W. Tozer ever wrote. He said, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And the reason why that's accurate is what we're going to see is that what Jonah believes about God is showing up in how he treats people. His view of God is determining how he views the Ninevites and how he views the Israelites. All of that kind of view on earth is rooted in his view of God in heaven. So the big idea is this, that what you believe about God determines how you treat people. Because we're seeing this happen with Jonah. He believes God loves the Israelites and hates everyone else, including their enemies. And, and the book of Jonah is this prophetic challenge against that view. And that challenge continues throughout the scriptures into the New Testament, where Jesus invites his followers, us, to a very different way. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Where have we heard this? We've heard it in Jonah. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that, the purpose of that, is that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Why do we love our enemies? Because God does that. And we're children like our Father. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We saw this in week one, that God's given grace and mercy on some level to everyone. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers or sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles who don't worship God do the same? Friends, your view of God shapes everything in your life. And what you believe about God is going to show up in how you treat the people around you. Because you're mimicking your vision of God. And the way that you feel about a creator impacts how you treat his creation. And this is why it's so important, especially at this moment in human history, for us to pay attention to what we believe about God 
and to ensure that we're defining ourselves fundamentally, first and foremost, as worshipers and followers of him. Last week, I shared with you a quote from Miroslav Volf. He was a Bosnian theologian who lived through the, the Bosnian, Herzegovinian, and Serbian wars of the 90s. Here's what he wrote. He said, Christians can never be, first of all, Asians or Americans, Russians or Tutsis, and then Christians. He said, Christianity is not a flight from original culture, but a new way of living within it because of the new vision of peace and joy in Christ. When you become a follower of Jesus and you give your life to him, when when you're baptized and you said, hey, I'm identifying with Jesus, the old me has died and the new me has been raised to life. Your identity at its fundamental level changes. And though you may still maintain your American citizenship, I know we have some Canadians in our church, your Canadian citizenship, your fundamental citizenship is you are a citizen of a kingdom that has no end, a kingdom that is eternal. And that is now fundamental about how you see the world and how you move in the world. Well, the story continues with a little bit of botany. So if you have your Bible still, then let's go to verse 6. Jonah verse 6 says, Then the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. And Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. Those of you gardeners, you know that feeling you, something grew finally from your work. When dawn came the next day, though, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. I mean, the garden came in fast and it went out fast. And as the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. So let's pause. God appointed a plant. Then he appointed a worm. Then he appointed a wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. The second lesson we learn from a guy who answers his own questions is this, that we learn a lot from how we react when something we value is lost. If you want to know what someone's like, take away the thing they value. Now, they may not know they value it, and you may not know they value it until it's taken away. And then you learn a lot. And we learn a lot about Jonah in this text when this plant that had risen up one day and was eaten the next is gone. Scholars believe that it was a a ricinus. I'm probably mispronouncing that for those of you gardeners in the house. I'm sorry. It was a a castor plant. This is a very fast growing plant in this part of the world with, as you can tell, very large leaves. Now, like any plant, it is not going to grow in one day. Even if you put miracle grow on it, it's not going to grow in one day. So this is like divine miracle grow. And if you've been with us for this series, it's kind of like the whale. This is another miraculous event within creation that God does. He appoints this plant and he breaks the laws that he wrote when it comes to physics. And this plant grows up. And then the plant is destroyed because a worm came. And apparently this is a really kind of miraculous worm that it eats through the plant in a day. 
I remember that story of the worm when I was a kid, the hungry caterpillar. This is like the hungry caterpillar on steroids, you know? Like, he eats the whole plant in a day. And then, and then the wind comes in, and its sun is beating down, and Jonah is so exhausted, he almost faints from heat sickness. And he says, God, it'd be better for me if I died. And for those of you who've been following this, Jonah is kind of a dramatic guy. You have those friends, like I have friends, like everything is either the best or it's the end of the world, you know? My wife's in the room, so I probably should admit, I'm probably more like that than I'm not like that, you know? I tend to have very strong reactions. But what's so fascinating is if you were here last week, you remember, Jonah wanted to die because the people live. You remember that last week? He says, it'd be better for me if I died, God, because these people are getting mercy. What's fascinating is five verses later, Like this much text. Now he wants to die, not because the people lived, but because the plant didn't live. He's just dramatic. But remember, the book bears Jonah's name, but the book isn't written to Jonah. The book is written by Jonah. And it's written to Israel. And Jonah in this text is like Israel because Jonah and Israel care more for their personal comfort than they do the spiritual condition of others. Jonah doesn't doesn't have a meltdown because 120,000 people are going to die. Jonah has a meltdown because they don't die. He has a meltdown because the plant that he didn't take care of, that he didn't put in the ground, that he didn't tend to, he has it for a day. A day. And it's gone. And he says, God, kill me now. I mean, this is an epic meltdown. I mentioned parenting. This is like one of those moments as a a parent, you're like, there's no way this reaction matches the moment, you know? But I wonder about you. What caused your last meltdown? Somebody pull in front of you? Somebody take the last set of rice that was on sale at Fry's? (laughs) Somebody not communicate with you well? Somebody didn't do what they said they were going to do? Somebody didn't anticipate your own wants and needs? They were having a bad day. See, what we're seeing with Jonah is that Jonah is using his own story to challenge his own people and us. To say, hey, what brings out that in you? What leads you to the place where you say, you know what, I would rather die than live in this. And what Jonah is going to show us next, I think, is maybe most challenging of all. This is what he writes down. He says, then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? So first he asks him, is it right for you to be angry about Nineveh? And then he goes, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, yes, it's right. I'm angry enough to die. I mean, we're talking dramatic here. He is committed to this. And then the Lord says, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and you did not grow. It appeared in a night, and then it perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, 
as well as many animals. So for all of you dog and cat lovers here in Prescott, God cares about the animals. Here's the third lesson. You can, get, you can clap for that there. Thank you. Third lesson is that our frustrations with God often originate from our expectations of God. So often our frustration problem is rooted in an expectation problem. And that's been Jonah's whole journey from chapter 1 to chapter 4. He has this expectation of what God should do, and then God doesn't do that. He does the opposite of that. In in the ancient world, starting with the Egyptians, through the Babylonians, into the Persians, into the Greeks, into the Romans, the basic idea of divine beings is that they were apathetic. The Greek had the word apatheia that they used, where we get our word apathetic. The fundamental posture for all of these ancient cultures and, and, and nations and empires was that there was a divine, but that divine was apathetic towards humanity, was fickle. If you remember the stories of the gods in the, in the Greek mythology, they're incredibly self-absorbed, they're narcissistic, and they could care less about humanity. And that's why the image of God that we get in the Old Testament and the New Testament is so shocking. Because the God of the Bible is as far from apathy as he can get. In Luke 15, Jesus tells a story to introduce the character of God. And it involves two sons. We've been going over the story throughout this series. There's a father and his younger son says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Since you're not dead, can I have a, an advance in my inheritance? So the father gives him his inheritance. The son runs off. He spends the money on a, a massive bender and he wakes up literally in a pigsty, caring for the pigs, lusting and hungering for the food the pigs are eating. And he comes back home. And when he returns home, he finds not what he expected. His older brother is out in a field and he comes back and, and he witnesses what's happening. And his older brother is angry. His, his arms are crossed. He's mad at the father. And one of the most powerful moments in all of scripture happens in Luke fifteen twenty, When the younger son comes home. And it says, so he got up, the younger son, and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with, and I left the word out. And the reason why I left the word out is the same reason why God ends the book with a question. He wants us to wrestle with that. I wonder for you, in your life with God, when you've come back home from your own massive vendor, when you've been far from God, when you've not been walking with God, when you know that your life has not been honoring him, and you came back home, And he saw you from a long way off. What did you expect God to be filled with? I can tell you what I expect God to be filled with. Disappointment. Embarrassment. What a waste. I gave him my grace. I gave him my mercy. I gave him my love, and he just wasted it. 
so many of us have a view of God that we think God is annoyed, disappointment, disappointed, discouraged, frustrated, ashamed of us. And this shows up not just in how we treat everybody else. It shows up in how we treat ourselves. Remember the big idea? What you love about God determines how you treat people. Friends, you're included in the people. Your view of God determines how you treat yourself. Because often our inner voice, you know that inner critic? One of my friends calls it the crazy lady in the attic. That voice is often a mimic or an echo of what we think God sounds like. And that's why it is so shocking in Luke 15, 20, that it says the father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. I don't know about you, but when I've had one of those younger son moments, I do not expect compassion. I expect to hear it. I expect to get it and not get a, a hug and a kiss. But what's so fascinating is in the New American Standard Translation, they translate it this way. Jonah, should I not also have compassion on Nineveh? That great city with more than 120,000 people. Just for reference, Quad Cities is 130 to 140,000. Same size as Prescott, Prescott Valley, Chino, and Dewey. And that, that word for compassion in Jonah 4 it means to grieve over someone or something, to have your heart broken, to weep for it. We do not serve an apathetic God. We do not serve a God who is self-absorbed, narcissistic, and fickle towards us. We serve a God who in the midst of our worst moment grieves over us, is broken over us, weeps over us, and sacrifices himself for us. That's our God. And just so you know that the things that happen in Jonah also happen in the New Testament, here's what Jesus does as he's heading to Jerusalem to be crucified. Luke 13, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Luke 19, as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. This is why I want to encourage you that, yes, Jonah's name is on the book. Yes, Jonah is a prophet, but God is not like his prophet. Because what we see in the text is Jonah rages over plants while God weeps over people. God is not like us. We are not yet like God. And Jonah is raging over the wrong thing. While God is over here weeping over the right thing. And that's why it's so powerful that, that God says, Should I not have compassion on these 120,000 people who are blinded? They don't know their right hand from their left hand. They're completely blinded. But the thing is, the Ninevites aren't the only blind people in the book. Jonah's blind too. 
And God is incredibly compassionate towards him in his blindness. Here's the fourth and final lesson. This book, this book of Jonah, is intended to provoke reflection and inspire transformation. Jonah was not given to us so we would have information. Is it a whale or is it a fish? What kind of plant is it? Could it have grown in a day? What kind of worm is it? The the Bible wasn't given to add to your knowledge bank. It wasn't given to you so you could have more biblical, trivial pursuit knowledge. This book was given to us to be like a mirror. To cause us to reflect on ourselves. And hopefully in the areas where who we are is not aligned with God to transform. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says about Jonah. He says, the book of Jonah forces us to contemplate our own personal destiny. It remains unfinished in order that we may provide our own conclusion. For you are Jonah and I am Jonah. We don't know what Jonah says to God's question, should I not have compassion on them? The book ends. It's one of those weird movies that has a cliffhanger ending. You're like, whoa, whoa, the credits are rolling? How can this be over? What happened here? Jonah was written that way to provoke reflection, first and foremost in the Israelites. Not for them to be concerned about what happened to Jonah, but for them to be concerned what's going to happen to them. Because Jonah goes through his own journey. He goes through a storm. He's rescued by God out of the water with the whale. And he ends up in another storm. This is not a rainstorm, it's a heat storm. With heat and wind. And ultimately, God's trying to speak to him and reveal to him how he has misled his own life. Later on, Jesus will tell a story about how we build our lives when storm comes. In Matthew 7, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, that's the storm. The wind blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded the house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Jesus says it's not that the man who had the house that crashed didn't know the right things. It's that he didn't put them into practice. And so, friends, what happens when the storm comes in your life? It's not that did you not come and listen to five weeks of Scott talking about Jonah with a week from my friend Jeff. It's not a matter of do you know the the bigger, fuller story of Jonah. The question is, what did you do with it? Did you take those words that you heard and did you put them into action? That makes the difference. Because fundamentally, we are now living in a world that is going to be stormy. I don't know the future. I just expect more choppy waters than smooth waters. I expect more challenges than I do life on the beach. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus living in this historical moment, it's going to be hard. 
And what's so frustrating is that our society, like Nineveh, doesn't know its right hand from its left, and we have unrealistic expectations. The philosopher and professor Charles Taylor wrote these words. He says, modern society is on the deepest level incoherent with regard to morality. He said, our culture demands impartial benevolence towards all people, social justice for every oppressed class, the reduction of hunger, disease, and suffering everywhere in the world. Make the world a better place is what you hear. While at the same time, in principle, denying that any such moral value is other than an arbitrary or subjective preference. We expect people to love and care and have mercy and do justice, while at the same time saying any objective moral value or standard is arbitrary, personal, and your truth. And we expect people to act magnanimous and generous. Friends, that is the epitome of ludicrous. People do not become loving, generous, caring, unselfish people naturally. I learned that with my young children. (laughs) And that's why what you believe about God determines how you treat people. Because if you don't believe there is a God... And you don't believe there is any objective standard. And you don't believe there is ultimately any eternal accountability. Then you do you, boo. And that's why what Jesus does is he brings together these radically opposed things. Justice that Jonah was so obsessed with and love. The cross becomes the way that God could be both just and loving. Yes, there had to be justice. Yes, something had to be done about the evil and injustice in the world. And Jesus says, I'll take it. I'll pay that price. And that love and mercy and grace is expressed because everyone now can receive it. Because Jesus loved us enough to take it. We live in a world that is hungry for justice, but has no idea how to do grace and forgiveness. We don't believe it's real. And in a world where all we have is a longing for justice, it will be a world where we eat ourselves alive. Because eventually everybody will get canceled. Eventually everyone will get what they deserve. And the good news is we worship a God who gives us better than we deserve. So, you may say, Scott, how do we get Jonah? How do we have this book? I love the reflection that Tim Keller gives about the end of Jonah. He says, how do we know that Jonah was so recalcitrant? Great word, by the way, if you're looking for your word of the day. Defiant and clueless. How do we know he made that unbelievable, I hate the God of love speech? How do we know about his prayer inside of the fish? The only way we could possibly know these things is if Jonah told others. But what kind of man will let the world see what a fool he was? Only someone who would become joyfully secure in God's love. Only someone who believed that he was simultaneously sinful, 
but completely accepted. Jonah is the ultimate example of telling on yourself. Because Jonah writes down his own experience and he gives it to his people as a gift. To say, friends, countrymen, neighbors, what you believe about God is going to determine how you treat people. And friends, we have some work to do when it comes to what we believe about God. So let me give you some next steps this morning as we bring this series to a close. The first one is this. I want to invite you to receive the same compassion that God offered Jonah. That's the beauty of the story. God gives this idiot compassion. I mean, I'm sorry, that's probably a strong word, but I think it's probably mild. He gives Nineveh compassion, the most wicked, evil, terrorist empire on earth. And the younger son who runs away and the older son who won't come into the party, all of them get compassion. And so do you. So do you. No matter what you've done or where you've been. The same compassion that's available to them is available to you. You don't earn compassion. You don't do enough good to merit compassion. It's a gift. Friends, receive it. Receive it. Number two. This week, I want to encourage you to sit down and write out what you believe about God. And then as you're writing it out, I want you to ask the question, where did you find and develop those ideas? Because I think a lot of us who have Bibles, who sit in church, who call ourselves followers of Jesus, have found and developed ideas about God that don't line up with the God you meet in the Bible. If you expect that blank from earlier to be filled with disappointment, discouragement, shame, and annoyance, you didn't get that from the Bible. You probably got it from your dad. Or your mom. Or the pastor who yelled at you growing up. And friends, those people are very imperfect attempts at reflecting a perfect father. But they are not God. And then third, maybe this is the most challenging. I want to invite you to commit being a follower of Jesus first and an American second before 24 begins. Next year will begin my third presidential election that I have pastored through. And I'm not looking forward to it. (laughs) And if anything else for me, what Jonah has done is it has reminded me that I'm a follower of Jesus first and foremost. And an American second. And all too often I see in myself and I see in my brothers and sisters in Christ the same attitude that I see in Jonah. Love your people and hate the other. God is for us and against them. And before we enter into the craziness of what next year will bring, we need this book and we need this reminder That first and foremost, we are his. And we treat people in light of what we believe about him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. You promise us that it doesn't return void. And we've experienced that over the last five weeks. 
We thank you for your Holy Spirit present in this room and alive in our hearts to illuminate your word, to convict, to challenge, and to comfort us. Jesus, I thank you that that you've given men and women in this room, teenagers, college students, people watching online, eyes to see and ears to hear. This has been a hard word. It's not easy to receive. This mirror shows us a view of ourselves that we'd rather close our eyes to. But Jesus, you gave us this book in Jonah to provoke us to reflect on the areas where as followers of you, we're not reflecting you. We're not seeing you clearly. And so God, I pray that you would bring transformation in how we see you in how we see ourselves and how we show up in this world to treat others. God, you are better than we deserve. You are more loving. You are more gracious. You are slow to anger and abounding in love. You're quick to offer compassion, especially to people who don't deserve it. And yet you promise to allow justice to roll down like rivers. You promise that everything will be made right in the end. So God, we pray as we've rediscovered Jonah that we would rediscover you. And you would help us to grasp and be given a vision of who you are. And may our vision of who you are show up in everything we do, everything we say, and the way we treat every person we meet. I'm so thankful this week, Jesus, that you gave me compassion. I know I didn't deserve it, but I'll never stop thanking you for it. God, you are so good. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.